0: Hello and welcome to the EMVR 203 podcast, Knowledge Ethics and Environment podcast. Today we are taking a look at the question, what are some of the historical roots of contemporary anti-nature systems? Before we get to that, uh, I have one point of housekeeping I wanted to let you all know about. You can mark your calendars, the final exam date has been announced by the university. The 203 final exam is going to be a take-home exam. It will be released to you no later than 9 a.m. Eastern Standard on December 9th, uh, and it's due on December 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard, again, so you have this, this five business day window to prepare your responses. I will post all of this in my courses as well, but I wanted to let you know now that the date is available I also want to make clear that the exam should take no more than three hours to write. So while you have a a generous window in which to draft something, take some distance, return to it, give it some thought, It's important that you submit the exam before noon on the 16th. Late exams will be penalized, so please make sure that you use that window. Uh, If technical difficulties were to arise on the 14th, you would still have the 15th. Plenty of time to get it in, so please take advantage of that window and be sure to submit before noon on December 16th. Now, that's really the only housekeeping for this week, so without um, further delay, we can turn to the question of the week. What are some of the historical roots of contemporary anti-nature systems? Okay, so let me begin with the premise that extinction is a global problem. But it's also an unevenly distributed one. What do I mean by this? Well, around the world, 36 areas qualify as hotspots. Um, that means that they have less than 30% of their natural vegetation. These regions represent a very small amount of the land's actual surface, just 2.4% of the earth's land surface but they actually support more than half of the world's plant species as endemic that means the species that are not found anywhere else and in terms of uh, sentient creatures we're talking about 43 percent of birds mammals reptiles amphibian species also as endemics so these are places hotspots are generally areas globally that are brimming with life, but they're also where these species are under threat, where there's so many different kinds of species under threat because there's so many species that live in these places. You'll be able to see there's a map included in the notes for this week. Um, You can picture a kind of band wrapping around the middle of the planet. Tropical rainforests, not surprisingly, are the densest areas on land when it comes to biodiversity. they are also some of the most politically charged landscapes as forests are converted into farmland, as indigenous peoples are forced off their traditional territories, as international corporations draw from the richness of these places to make medicines, to raise feed and cattle for the fast food industry, for example, um, a whole range of other economic interests. This is unlikely to be news to you. Uh, when you do see the map in this week's notes, you'll be able to see that biodiversity is unevenly distributed uh, globally. So those hot spots are where life surges but they're also as I said where uh, the extinction crises are felt most acutely where species are most at risk why is this happening what are the causes of extinction they're manifold uh, things like habitat destruction some of the reasons I gave before Um, invasive species are also disrupting ecologies over harvesting of species of course climate change and the thing is extinction is tragically ubiquitous on earth extinction of species have occurred on every single landmass and ocean uh, on the planet and it's out of control the earth is losing 100 species a day conservation biologists expect this to continue uh, to the elimination of 50 percent of the animal and plant life that exists today it's it's actually almost unimaginable. The The image that comes to mind to me is, is like we're erasing half of the colors in the rainbow. And the generations that come will not know how impoverished their rainbow has become. Um, I really I can't, I don't know that there is an adequate way to communicate this, um, the scope of this loss. And it's the sixth mass extinction event that we know of uh, for the history of the planet. It's uh, it's often called the Holocene extinction um, because it's it's an extinction event uh, during the Holocene epoch. Um, it's also known as the Anthropocene extinction to those who are considering our current epoch as the the Anthropocene um, And that term certainly calls attention to, the fact that human activity is central to this extinction event. This wave of extinction is the worst catastrophe for life on Earth since the asteroid impact that destroyed the dinosaurs. So you may be aware of that. the scope of that crisis. Um, what's less well-known is that researchers have also been making important connections between language loss and culture death and the death of biodiversity around the world. 70% of the world's languages are found within the planet's biodiversity hotspots. Linguists predict that 50 to 90% of the world's languages will actually disappear by the end of the century. In other words, many cultural practices and ways of being are also facing extinction right now. Traditional culture loss and biodiversity loss share several important drivers, um, issues like urbanization, exposure to globalized commercialization, their relationships here. And we're not quite sure yet why it happens, but researchers are exploring the possibility that at least in some cases, biodiversity evolved as part and parcel of cultural diversity and vice versa. This is according to Larry Gorenflow from Penn State Archeology. span And so what uh, Gorenflow and others are noticing is that of the 6,900 or or more uh, languages that are spoken on earth, More than 4,800 of these occur in regions that contain high biodiversity. So these are very, very important landscapes and people are a part of these ecosystems. Tsatsuya Amano, who's a zoologist at the University of Cambridge in the UK, uh, was the lead author of a study published in the Proceedings of Royal Society B, And in, Amano's work, two types of language loss hotspots emerged from the study. One was in economically well-developed regions like Northwestern North America, Northern Australia. Second was in what we might, uh, with air quotes, call economically developing regions, uh, such as the tropics and the Himalayas. And certain aspects of geography did seem to act as a buffer or a threat. So for example, recent declines occur uh, faster in temperate climates than in the tropics or in the mountainous regions. And They're theorizing that this might be because it's easier to travel in and out of temperate regions and these regions have these kind of particular histories of settler colonialism that should be considered as well. More research is necessary to determine precisely what's going on here between, like, why does economic development kill language? Um, Figuring out how economic growth interacts with other factors, such as landscape, is the next step. So there's a lot to learn here. But I want to return to the idea of why language loss is such an important issue when we're talking about extinction and understanding um crises to diversity of all kinds because this violence the loss of language is a loss of a whole way of seeing the world without language you can't express cultural ideas so for example a few years ago uh, i took a road trip around uh the fleuve and of St. Lawrence, but in English we don't have a word for fleuve. There's no way for me to see the fleuve. You can, it can be a seaway, it can be a river, you know, I have other words, but this kind of extraordinary body of water that is salty on one end and sweet at the other and mixed all the way along and where you can see uh, tides rising is just unlike anything from from where I've grown up for example and I can't know it as fleuve without that word so what this means is that many ways of seeing the world ways that actually could be very important for helping heal a suffering planet these ways of seeing are being undervalued and they're being lost And that's a question of justice. It's a political question, certainly, but it's also an ethical question. Whole worlds are lost with language extinction. How do we account for all of this devastation though? You know, I think we wanna look further than the usual suspects. Uh, we tend to choose kind of small groups of, of particular people. You know, we look to poachers hunting for ivory or ranchers cutting down rainforests for fast food con- or, or fast food consumers for that matter, who eat too many hamburgers and encourage the ranchers to cut down the rainforest. We, we look to these kinds of groups and we point our fingers as being, you know, they're the ones responsible for all this death. I don't, it. I think we need to investigate what threatens diversity in both human and biotic forms. But we need to do it in a way that understands that there are systems that sustain this kind of destruction. Humanity isn't able to launch a sixth extinction without there being some kind of systemic articulation at work. It's not just little random groups of people. So what I'm trying to suggest here is that we can't understand the sixth extinction without understanding the violence that such places have been subject to. And that's why we're going to do some historical work today as a part of understanding how to better protect flourishing and diversity in all of its forms. Ecocide is not specific to colonialism but there is something specific and systemic and worthy of consideration in terms of how colonialism begets ecocide by which i mean the destruction of large areas of the natural environment through activities like over exploitation of resources or more extreme examples like nuclear warfare or dumping harmful chemicals And I'm, you know, an example that's not specific to colonialism, uh, we could go as far back as the Sumerian Empire, 1800 BCE. That civilization deforested their lands uh, and salt accumulated in the soils from uh, intensive wheat production, I believe. And as the Sumerians tried to deal with it, they brought new lands under cultivation and built new cities, but eventually they hit the limits of agricultural expansion and food production crashed. And that was the end of the Sumerians. Now for this week's reading, Ashley Dawson argues that colonial expansion through mercantile capitalism marks the moment when previously limited ecocides can take place at planetary levels. So that's something a little bit different um, and really worth taking note of. So merchant or mercantile capitalism, just to be clear, is distinguished from more fully developed capitalism by its focus on just moving goods from a market where they're cheap to a market where they're expensive. Um, so it's not really influencing the mode of the production of those goods. Um, we don't see uh, you know industrialization. We don't see commercial finance like we do in in later forms of capitalism. It's really just moving the stuff around. Now Dawson characterizes the colonial encounter as one, by which the subjugation of both people and nature is central and the creation of commodities for new globalizing markets is likewise key. So we, uh, we get the example of the fur trade, for instance. And another part of his argument that's important to understand is that capitalism inherently degrades its own conditions of production. What do I mean by that? He gives us a couple of examples. We get the fur trade example uh, and the whaling industry example to show us how capitalism degrades its own conditions of production. And He writes on page 44, the insatiable demand for fur consequently became one of the primary catalysts for the European colonization of the Americas. So maybe coming to mind is uh, the paper we read by Robinson the other week, where we considered how the Mi'kmaq communities uh, saw their own populations succumb to disease and how their relationships with animal kin were radically transformed in these years as a result of the colonial encounter you know there are many other examples dawson argues that basically treating life in the world as a resource for our socio-economic system is uh the central problem here. It renders nature as a growing set of commodities that are increasingly scarce, uh, and it devalues certain people and cultures um, in similar ways. So that historical piece is really powerful, not only so that we're aware of the context of you know, the roots of the extinction crises uh, where they have sort of expressed themselves in fledgling terms and were launched by systems that have only further uh, developed and become more complex and expanded their reach around the world. I wanna ask what happens if we think of the current extinction crisis as a long-term historical, and global attack on the commons. What is the commons? The commons is all the cultural and natural resources that are accessible to everyone in a society. Um, Air, water, habitable earth, uh, there, the important thing is that they're it's, they're understood to be held in common and not owned privately. Um, in anthropology, it's also uh, frequently the case that the commons is understood to specifically refer to natural resources that a group of people um, manage for individual and collective benefit. And I'm I'm trying to kind of paint an image here of how. Uh, The world was once held in common and we have been seeing uh, consistent ways of narrowing what is shared uh, and seeing increasing privatization and with that uh, also destruction, interestingly. And a big part of that um, is a concept that I want to talk about now, which is called ecological imperialism. This concept comes from Alfred Crosby, he's a historian, um, prominent scholar in the field of environmental history, and he uses this idea of ecological imperialism to explain why it was possible for a relatively small number of European colonizers to dominate Entire continents in the span of just a few centuries. I mean, yeah, they had guns, but they were wildly outnumbered when they first arrived in the shores of the Americas. And Crosby's research suggests that the devastating scope of the invasion was due to biology rather than, you know, some kind of military conquest. And he uses this argument to highlight certain kinds of impacts that were wrought across colonized landscapes. Big one is disease introduction. And I can't even say this, you know, in the moment of living with COVID-19 as we are now, without it having a completely different valence and uh, uh, just um, a kind of contemporary edge um, that of course, many indigenous um, thinkers have have drawn the historical link. Uh, for for every person who wants to talk about COVID-19 as unprecedented, uh, there's a, a cultural group who would say, actually, we've seen this before. And Crosby uh, makes that very clear with this idea of disease introduction as an essential part of ecological imperialism. Um, But there's another piece. So as populations were um, being absolutely decimated through new diseases, the landscape was also being transformed radically through over-harvesting and through the introduction of non-native and often invasive species. So these two elements, new diseases and transforming the landscape in these ways were central elements of the colonization process. Um, And they led to major shifts in the ecology of colonized areas and to population collapses among indigenous peoples. Crosby actually writes that the regions that today export more foodstuffs of European provenance let's say grains and meats than any other lands on earth actually had no wheat, no barley, no rye, no cattle, no pigs, no sheep or goats whatsoever 500 years ago. So if you just sit with that for a minute and recognize how very different a place the Americas are as a result of the colonial encounter, it. it just—it's um, <laughs> a real—it's a real stretch, I guess, for my imagination um, to, to wrap my head around it. Now, how did it happen? When Europeans shifted um, from modes of social organization uh, and hunting strategies, gathering strategies, and started to emphasize agriculture. They weren't moving around the land in the same way. They were settling in large communities. They were domesticating small animals. And as a result, they were being exposed to diseases that would actually later um, assist in this kind of conquering and uh, the colonial encounter. Because mice and rats and roaches and houseflies and worms and all these uh critters did really well in these new urban conditions, people were getting sick. And so they were constantly being subjected to disease and millions of Europeans did die when diseases like the Black Death ravaged Europe in the Middle Ages. Um, And these kind of frequent epidemics meant that the population was affected but was also building up a resistance over time each epidemic would spare some people and they would be more able to resist the next one that came. So, you know, after undergoing this kind of process over centuries, the entire population eventually acquired at least some minor immunological defense against diseases like measles and smallpox, for example. But in the Americas, indigenous communities were in relatively less dense, uh, more diffuse communities, and they weren't interacting with animals in the same way that Europeans were. So they weren't being exposed in the same way. And when the Europeans arrived in the Americas with these diseases that were absolutely new, the consequences were, uh, I mean, just utterly overwhelming. Ashley Dawson writes that as Europeans colonized other parts of the world, they took cultural beliefs with them that legitimated their conquests. These ideologies of domination intended to justify European expropriation of indigenous people and their land, and also established an exploitative attitude towards flora and fauna in the colonies. Through colonialism, we can trace the spread of disease and agricultural commodities that had devastating and transformative impacts right around the world. And we can also see the spread of a way of thinking about the natural world, a way of turning abundance into profits, a way of treating nature and certain groups of people like indigenous communities, women, for example, into resources. At this point, I'd like to turn to the second reading for the week, White's paper called The Dakota Access Pipeline, Environmental Injustice in US Colonialism. We began today by making connections between cultural and biological diversity and how ideologies and practices of domination have been used to exploit both. In this paper, White explains systemic injustice and that it occurs when, quote, perpetrators gain at the expense of others under the conscious or tacit auspices that doing so is acceptable because the others are of certain skin colors, cultures, genders, disabilities, and other social identities. and. He goes on to identify settler colonialism as a systemic injustice. After he gives us this definition of what what that actually means, he says, you know, we can understand settler colonialism as one of these kinds of systemic injustice. And actually, he then goes on to argue that settler colonial injustice is environmental injustice. And this is where I think for a course like ours, this becomes, particularly uh, important to unpack. White describes how the U.S. settlement process aims directly at undermining the ecological conditions required for indigenous people to exercise their cultures, economies, and political self-determination. He writes about how settler colonial tactics expressed through their treaty making, allotment policies, Um, And colonial technologies from dams to mines to farming have literally changed hydrological flows, soil nutrients, and many other ecological conditions. So it's almost like an extension of the ecological imperialism that Crosby's writing about. The ways in which settler colonial systems have been operating on these lands has been obviously and profoundly unsustainable the same industries that were used to violate indigenous sovereignty, agriculture, the military extractive industries are all examples, have also had devastating colonial impacts. And what White is pointing out is that that's not a coincidence. It's completely to be expected. And so this is exactly why in this paper, He shows us that the hashtag no dapple activism at Standing Rock is indigenous resistance to settler colonial practices that actually harm the ecosystem and the community and how that has a much, much longer historical trajectory right from the earliest moments of colonial encounter in the lands that he, he is focusing on in the paper. And so the work does this, kind of tracing through of the early colonial encounter and how what's going on uh, at Standing Rock has this continuity that is actually uh, very much in the spirit of more of the same, unfortunately. Now, to wrap up today, uh, I think we should turn to the Boyd readings. Here we get to see some legal breakthroughs in resisting ecological harm and species extinction. It's nice to have uh, some heartening examples. I know that the topic of extinction is a difficult one. Um, And Boyd writes in chapter six on page 88, that just as laws recognizing the sentience of animals represent a breakthrough with respect to the rights of individual animals, Recognizing the intrinsic value of biodiversity is a breakthrough for the rights of species. So this is an exciting turn. Uh, I'm very heartened to see that as the intrinsic value of biodiversity is recognized, there are uh, shifts that become requisite. So seeing the intrinsic value of biodiversity means that It becomes problematic to treat other species as property. It also infers that other species have the right to live, the right to their own natural habitat, for example. So if we can see this kind of, um, and it's not everywhere yet, we have specific examples across the chapter, but if in general we can recognize the causing extinction is morally wrong, Boyd writes that quote, "biodiversity's intrinsic value could serve as a precursor to the expanding recognition of nature's rights." So we get examples in this chapter from Costa Rica and India, among others. Uh, and interestingly, to me, in those two cases at least, their countries was hotspots and you know many vulnerable species. And they're beginning to show the rest of us how this can actually be done. And we're going to learn more about those exciting examples in the weeks to come. But to tie up the work today, what I want to make clear is that if human systems are central to loss of life and culture, and I think that we have seen some pretty powerful examples as to um, why and how that's the case, the systems can also be built to protect life and to protect culture. So let's let's leave it there for today. Thank you for your attention, and I look forward to seeing those of you who can join us at the Q and A and the active learning sessions this week. Take good care. My yesterdays were erased Death will bring change Then before the crash I reveled in potential untapped Mortality was not contained Death will bring change Swell is rich with bitter wine. in the end, does that help? <clears throat> no. It's okay, i just turn my stuff down. Right. let do the whole thing. Yeah, let's do the yeah. whole thing. Let's do, let's do the whole song. Wait, wait! Wait!